Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Feather Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. Before we get into this podcast, I want to talk about some of the things I've been thinking regarding it and what I want to accomplish with it. I want to start doing this monthly, with the goal of it coming out roughly around the 15th of month, depending on my schedule. I also want to try and have each episode be around 30 minutes or so, depending on the topic and who I'm talking to. I also want to branch out from my red carpet interviews. Don't worry, the podcast will still have those when I get them. After all, I know I prefer hearing the words from the actual celebrity rather than reading them, so I assume you are the same. However, the original purpose of the podcast was to be along the same lines as my master's thesis. I want it to be a place to talk about various geeky topics and to talk to people about things they geek out about. So my interview list will be expanding to people you may not know. But the one thing in common? We are all geeky about something. In this episode, I sat down with Jimmy Matloss, a cinematographer I met at an event that was part of the Emerging Cinematographer Awards. Jimmy is the chair of the awards, and he had some great advice at that event to the winners about the business of the film industry. So earlier this month, I sat down with him at his home to discuss the geekier details of what a cinematographer does, his work process, his history, and his latest project. I'm Jimmy Matlos. I uh, have made my living as a cinematographer the, for the past 15 years, starting in the film business in 1989. I've also worked as a director and a writer and producer. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, give me a brief, you know, how did you get into this career? What made you decide to, 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 to do this versus, you know, the plethora of other jobs that are out there? Um, I got into this career, I guess I could attribute it to watching a lot of TV as a child. Gilligan's Island, I Dream a Genie, um, you name it. Um, and I always found the entertainment industry to be fascinating uh, for whatever reason. Um, there, I don't think there's any way to put a finger on what led me here. Um, and so I went to college for originally audio production. Uh, I really liked hanging out with bands and I love music. I'm completely obsessed with music, but I've never been a musician. Started out, thought I wanted to be a music producer, and uh, when I was in college, that led me into the visual arts for photography, video. Um, with TV, do you have a specific, and movies too, so to kind of move this into the, yep. the career side of things? Uh, is there a specific genre of that that you really like, or that is your favorite? Pretty wide range. Um, I would definitely say, wow, drama, um, a well-written drama. Um, I'm a stickler for facts and details. I don't like it when people make me jump the shark, so to speak, and have to believe something that's totally unplausible. When, if you're writing an original piece, why can't you just figure out a way to write an original piece that is plausible? Mm -hmm. um, and that, so uh, dramas definitely, I do like a good romantic comedy, but I want it, once again, to be intelligent. Romantic dramas are great. Sci-fi is always fun. Um, good documentaries. Um, I don't really do horror films, but um, I can appreciate a very well done horror film. 
Now, let's talk a little bit about kind of how photography leads into cinematography. I mean, they're obviously similar, but obviously different, too, because one's moving, one's not. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, you said you'd gotten into the visual arts. I'm assuming photography was, was kind yes. of the gateway to cinematography. Um, tell me a little bit about that angle of your career. Well, it's it actually interesting because while I was studying audio and music recording, I uh, was given the opportunity to fly to California with a friend of mine. And I grabbed my mom's camera. And remember, I'm 19 years old. I'm actually behind the curve of most people. And I came out to California and took all these pictures, and about half of them didn't come out. And I realized I should take a class in photography. I'm in college. I should do that. And I jokingly said that my first class in photography was like a shot of heroin to the temple, <laughs> where I became immediately obsessed and addicted and needed to know everything there was to know about it and understand it. So still photography, I did that. I studied that for a while, and at the same time, my audio classes were running out, and I was forced to take video classes, which I actually protested against. <laughs> I did not want to deal with video. I, did, I had no interest, and then once again, same thing. Studying the two at the same time, because I was at a community college at the time, we didn't have film classes. We had photography, and we had video, so you mesh the two together, and you start to come up with a, you start to learn a style and learn something about the genre and the technique, and then when I went on to a four-year college, I expanded and continued to study cinema uh, along with two friends of mine that I met in community college who were very much cinema heads and they were instrumental in helping me understand and learn about movie making and cinematography and I remember learning what a rack focus was for the first time being completely fascinated because mm -hmm. there is no such thing as a rack focus in still photography mm -hmm. you either change focus and take a picture or not so that was my arc and I'm a big proponent of um, telling up and coming and learning anyone who's learning the art of cinematography that they really have to be a photographer even if you aren't good at it you should do it mm -hmm. in terms of having done photography myself um, and had to sit through the, the zones uh, because this is back in the day when you still had to you still <laughs> well talk about the zone system I am a huge proponent of the zone system um, and I'm also a believer that the zone system is interpretive like most things Mm -hmm. What I interpreted when I read the zone system philosophy and um, was that you want to include every single part of the grayscale when taking a photograph. Mm -hmm. And you should understand how you use a light meter to do that in the right time and the right place to photograph it. Um, and I've actually had people argue against that. Mm -hmm. They say, you don't need a light meter anymore, you don't need to apply the zone system, you can just look at your histogram or waveform and expose. And I... I bristle at that concept <laughs> because arguably yes you could get a good photograph at high noon of half dome but why would you mm -hmm. well I mean that's let's get into the geeky aspects of that um, in terms of you know uh, yes modern cameras do a heck of a lot more than than older cameras used to especially with the, the digital technology back in the day you did you know you well, if you remember... 20 pieces of equipment, which now kind of is all in one piece of equipment in a way. Yeah, I mean, definitely being able to create an image uh, digitally is very simple. You show up, turn on a camera, and you have an image. Mm -hmm. But my philosophy on that is is that we shouldn't relegate ourselves as professionals to be novices. Because if you are the guy or girl or human that shows up and turns on a camera, gets an exposure, wiggles the f-stop, and rolls with it, what makes you any different than 
the guy down the street who happens to buy a camera or the mom and dad who are out shooting videos. You're no different just because you learned a little bit of discipline like how to frame something and how to show up on set and talk to a director. You, it's still studying the art of photography and the art of exposures and the art of color and framing and all that stuff comes into play. Mm -hmm. But understanding how to re recreate the same exposure over and over again is an art form. Um, and how to um, tell a story even with exposures is an art form. So just because you can show up and turn on a camera and point it at something does not make the a cinematographer. <laughs> but then when you read some of the interviews with Roger Deakins who will tell you that lighting with a, you know, a um, china ball and a bounce card is his choice. And uh, that's something that I think people need to be made aware of, that your style needs to be created by you, not because of a textbook. Mm -hmm. Now, this is going to sound like a simple question, but my background's from theater, which obviously is not film. <laughs> plenty of lights, though. Uh, oh, yes, plenty of lights. Um, and so I don't mean this in, in a very basic for dummies kind of way, but still, in terms of, you know, what does a cinematographer do that is different than from, say, a director or the camera operator? Um, the cinematographer's job is to realize the director's vision as best they can and as best the director can convey to them. Uh, on top of that, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to expand upon that vision and add style and creativity to it. And ideally, it becomes a collaborative relationship, is that... The director says, oh, I'm thinking of going from point A to point B. The actors are doing this, this, and this. And then the cinematographer either says, wow, that's fantastic. That works perfect. So I will light. I will accent. I will do this. I will do that. Or sometimes the cinematographer can add in and go, you know, it's actually better if you move the camera from here to here because this will help tell the story because the act, because it conveys, you know, this certain item or thing happening. Mm -hmm. um, and then also the director might say, you know, I want this to look like Technicolor. I want it to be really bright, brilliant colors. And then the cinematographer may either agree or say, you know, in your story, this is a really sad moment. And I understand the irony of having bright colors in a sad moment, but have you considered? So we're there to advise to, uh, and then also bring all the technological and creative knowledge of photography to the set. Um, ideally, a director directs. They work with talent. They bring out the emotion they continue to work with the actors and develop the story and develop the story day by day, scene by scene to make a congruent movie. If a photographer is too obsessed with the color of the backlight, then they're missing the point of being a director. Mm -hmm. That's my job. And if the, if the director turns around and says, wow, the backlight's blue, can we make it a different color? It's my job as a cinematographer to do that, not their job to micromanage it because then they're taken away from the art of um, in terms of equipment, I mean, I know with, with recording, yes, there, it does matter what equipment, but at the same time, it also, at the same time, doesn't matter what equipment you have. It's also, you know, how you use it, like you were talking about with, with the zones. Um, is there any specific equipment that you know is you have to have regardless? I mean, other than a camera. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, every, all, all equipment is relative to job. Uh, first and foremost, what you want to consider, though, in a generic sense, is does my, will my camera, the camera that I'm renting, the camera that I'm using on the job, what kind of latitude do I have? 
Um, now, back in the day with film, you would ha you could actually have the choice of different film stocks that have different latitude as far as re and it's reversal as well, which have limited latitude. So, what kind of latitude do I have, and how well does that serve the purpose of the story? Secondly, skin tone, which is the biggest number one thing. So, even though I said secondly, first <laughs> thing we have to consider is skin tone. How well is this camera going to render a skin tone? Whether that be any of the different shades of skin tone we have in the world, which is much more than five. <laughs> There's about a thousand different skin tones out there. Um, so we have to consider how well is that going to render a skin tone and how much manipulation will I have later to fix things like rosacea or a blemish later on. Are those things going to become a problem later? Um, so those are the two biggest things are latitude and skin tone otherwise we get into color rendering uh, some cameras don't see all the colors that another camera will see then you have to consider the color pro color palette of your project mm -hmm. um, there was a project we did uh, a couple years ago for coca-cola and i was told to use a certain camera and i warned production that that camera would not render the colors they wanted mm -hmm. and they just agreed with me and i said no i want to prove it so I went to the rental house and I shot side by side both cameras, the camera I wanted and the camera they suggested, and we shot color charts. And I proved to them without a doubt that if they wanted the color palette with the camera they wanted, that they would have had to boost everything and add it. With the camera I chose, it was there natively. Do you ever cross over into other roles in the in the film world? You know, directing? Oh yeah, I've uh, directed a lot of okay. commercials. Um, just finished directing uh, my first short film in many, many years. Um, it's now in film festivals. And I shot it. I directed it. I wrote the story. She wrote the script. We produced it together. Um, and then uh, we produced it overall in about five months' time. Do you find it harder working on your own stuff? Because I know like, editing my own work is usually the har harder than editing other people's because I'm so close to it. It's hard for me to quote-unquote kill my darlings. It is, uh, it's really good to be aware that you have to kill your children. <laughs> <laughs> and it's good to have somebody to sound off of. And I remember when I was a student and we were doing our student film, there was a scene where we had all, there was three of us, three of us were really good friends. And we directed the film together and we all took different roles in the film. And there was a scene where we put ourselves in there. It was a sci-fi piece where there was like this uh, laser gun battle. And we put ourselves in it and we all got killed. And we lasted all the way till the final edit, and we all knew that we didn't fit. We all knew that it was gratuitous, that this, and we cut ourselves out. I'm very aware of it, that you have to leave certain things on the floor, and I think once you cut them out and leave them on the floor, you're happier for it. The ideal thing is you're still delivering a story. It doesn't matter that this one shot looked amazing, and you forget about it very quickly. Hi, this is Jesse Salisbury. I'm a playwright from Kansas City. Check me out at the New Play Exchange, which is at newplayexchange.org. Take a look at my newest play, Fangirls, an improbable cosplay. But right now, I am geeking out with Angie Fiedler Sutton. In terms of you know the changing uh, media landscape, uh, with the creation of Vimeo and YouTube and, and the decrease of how much equipment costs, you're seeing a lot more people in that shady area between amateur and professional. Do you feel that's a good thing, bad thing? What is your experience in terms of how that has changed the world? 
Uh, I think giving people access to the ability to make a visual project, regardless of their financial background, is fantastic. Um, I think you'll wind up with a few amazing storytellers who would have never had the opportunity. I mean, coming into the film business with film cameras, even just shooting one roll of 35mm film, even if you got a free camera and free lighting, there was still the expense of buying film because people weren't just giving film away and then processing it. And then what do you do with it after you process it? <laughs> then you had to telecine it or figure out some way to get it to a video format. And then, oh, it's a professional video format and the decks cost $100,000. So it was very, very difficult. Nowadays, it's great because you can literally go out and shoot a really high quality project on a compact flash card, which every computer, any decent computer can read. And it's in QuickTime, which means you could even edit in iMovie, which I did my first 20, 30 demo reels and probably the first almost six, seven years of demo reels were cut on iMovie because it was so simple and rudimentary, which I love that fact. So it's great that it's available to people. The downside is now we're going to have a thousand times more bad stuff. So with any luck, the cream will rise to the top and there'll always be bad video and bad projects. Your recommendation in terms of what kind of experience or what kind of education that people should be getting if they can't go to school, what, you know, books or movies well, or, you know, things would you recommend? Um, every type of education imaginable is available. We are in the information age, but we're also in the YouTube cat video age. I've Googled or found YouTube videos on how to replace a starter on my Land Cruiser and how to replace a, uh, a headlight switch on my daughter's F-150. So if that's available, there's definitely a YouTube video on how to direct a movie, how to direct a short film, how to write a short film. Um, Aaron Sorkin just came out with his masterclass on, how, on screenwriting, which is $90. And you get to sit and listen to Alan, Aaron Sorkin speak about screenwriting, which is all of a sudden it humanizes screenwriting. Prior to that kind of a video, screenwriters were kind of an enigma. You, people didn't let them talk in public because they're often awkward. Um, and no one wanted to listen to them talk. And it was like they were these godlike creatures that people kept in dark rooms who were wordsmiths and they were smarter than everybody. And then when you listen to Aaron Sorkin, who is extremely intelligent, but also very human and accessible. When you're watching him and listening to him speak about screenwriting, you're thinking, oh my gosh, he's just like my buddy Joe. He's the same thing, and he's a little bit awkward like I am. Other than that, you watch movies and try to pay attention to the writing, which is extremely difficult because you get sucked in. Maybe it's a good idea to watch it with closed captions, so at least you're reading some of the dialogue. Immerse yourself in filmmaking and the type of filmmaking you want to do. Um, if you want to be a cinematographer, get a camera, get a film camera. And start taking pictures where you actually have to use a light meter. Because with digital, one card, 64 gig card, you're going to take 50,000 pictures. And you're going to have no clue what any of those 50,000 pictures are. Where you change the exposure, what you did here, what you did there. And, you know, that's the equivalent of buying an Uzi and calling yourself a marksman. Now, I like mentoring people. I mean, that's, that's a big... Um, because I, I, one of the things I discovered working in this industry is... For those of us who don't have an uncle, still looking for my uncle in the business, is that um, you want to find someone who's willing to give you five minutes of their time to give you some solid advice. 
and I offer that to a lot of people. I've um, I've been a guest speaker at multiple schools, Brooks, AFI, USC. Just met somebody from Long Beach State, and I told them, tell your professors I'm happy to come in and speak. Really rewarding when you're on set one day and someone comes up to you and says, hey, I was an AFI student, you come in and taught our class, and they thank you for that. Um, that's very rewarding. Um, I certainly like to see you know, good, hardworking people excel in their career. And it's really fun to watch that, um, especially when you see them rise and, and they appreciate everything that, that they've been lucky enough to have. Giving back is a big part of sort of what I do, I guess. And I enjoy it. Has there been any projects that you've picked that you've, you've done specifically because you felt it was going to be a challenge or to expand your you know, knowledge? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I always want projects that push me creatively, uh, technically, um, and there are so many that have done that. Um, all the way back to the first student film, it was the first student film I ever did, which was ironically an IMAX student film, first ever. And then I did an animated, uh, stop motion animated short that was shot digitally. And as far as I know, we were the first ones ever to shoot a stop motion animated short with a digital SLR and then printed it to 35 millimeter film. We did it before Corpse Bride. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, the director of Corpse Bride, Mike Johnson, actually visited our set. And I was in touch with Pete Kazachik, who was the DP of Corpse Bride, while we were shooting. I mean, when I was looking at your website, I noticed you had some VR experience. Mm, yeah. uh, as a geek, as I mentioned, you know, I've been really kind of interested in, in watching how the VR world is, is progressing and how it's going through these the same growth that every new medium has gone through. Um, shooting for VR, how different is that from shooting a quote-unquote normal film? Yeah, the challenges of shooting VR, VR is 360 degrees, 360 degrees all the time. Um, I, I've sh I Previously, I was shooting a lot of still photography in uh, panoramics. Very similar technique. You're going to shoot multiple pictures and you're going to stitch them together. Um, shooting VR, the problems you run into are, number one, your lights should be practicals whenever possible. Um, and moving the camera, there's a lot of stories out there that, oh, everybody moves the camera and look at all these demos of people moving the camera. But stitching a moving camera is challenging. It's not that it can't be done, but every time you do something different in that format, it's going to cost a lot of money. Honestly, I, I find almost no use for VR <laughs> in the entertainment world. Um, I think it's great for experiential. Uh, my friend Tom is shooting underwater VR projects, which I think is fantastic because when you're underwater, when you're scuba diving, it is 360, 360 in every possible direction. And how cool would it be to be able to be in a pod of whales in VR? I mean, very, very cool experience. Shooting in a 2D world or... or or you know, coming from the theater world, you understand this, mm -hmm. is that people perform. And yes, in, in a drama, even though we shoot in 2D, we st can still see the whole room, but we don't always need to see the whole room because chances are there's nothing going on in 180 degrees of it. And to direct that is challenging. Mm -hmm. um, I think industrial purposes are fantastic. If you live in America and your factory's in China, put a VR camera there and you can visit your factory. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> Um, and of course for video games. But as far as being an uh, entertainment genre, I don't know that anyone's ever written a story or a script so amazing where I am going to put on this helmet and watch it multiple times 
for the experience. I don't know that that script will ever exist. Well, we're kind of getting towards the end. Um, did you want to say anything more about your latest project, uh, the, the, the one that's in film festivals? You talked about it a little bit. but The title is The Online Date, and uh, to define how the title came up with is like, of course, I was considering Google searches, what would be a common terminology that might be accidentally Google, Google searched. Uh, the poetic name of the film was The Sirens in the Sky. Um, but I didn't think too many people would be Googling any combination of those words anytime soon. Um, and it is based upon a hypothetical of what could happen <laughs> or what people could imagine might happen on an online date where a man wakes up in a warehouse and tries to piece together the night before uh, only to find uh, his date from the previous night who greets him awkwardly and then reveals her secret. Um, we made the film, like I said, it was on a Wednesday that I got the call, wrote the story Thursday, or sorry, Wednesday night, pitched it Thursday morning, wrote the script Thursday, prepped the location on Thursday, we had a 12.30 p.m. call time on Friday. We cast actually with, um, started with a friend of ours, and she was actually the impetus for the storyline because she's over six feet tall. And what do you do with a woman who's beautiful and over six feet tall? You have to cast a man who's over six feet two or six feet three. And it's like, how do you justify using a woman that tall? So to her credit, she actually led us down the path we went. So anyway, we showed up 1230 call time. Uh, we shot for 10 hours with a one hour lunch. Uh, and I think we were taillights on the freeway at 1130 p.m. Um, we shot in 4K, very cam LT. Um, cobbled together a crew of, of friends and associates. Everyone got paid on the crew something. Um, the gaffer and the locations guy got the most money. Um, and, and we started editing shortly after that. Actually delivered something that Saturday that was just uh, a visual cut prior to um, any kind of grading. Pulled some favors for the grading, got uh, called friends at the mill. They were happy to do a proper grade on it. Uh, and I just said, when you're ready, I'm in no rush. Um, and then uh, had another friend of mine who works at Sony, worked on all the uh, audio, the initial audio prep and the audio mixing, and then he brought it to a friend of his who finished a 5.1 mix. And my feeling was, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it right. Uh, it was inspired by the look of Blade Runner. I wanted to see how close I'd get to a Blade Runner look for no money. Um, I think we did a pretty damn good job. And what this is, is actually, it. after all that, and as we sat down and looked at the story, we realized there was a bigger story there. So we're uh, in the process of writing the screenplay and uh, plan on a Christmas delivery of the first completed draft. And then, of course, uh, go from there. And you know, I want to be prepared. Go to any film festival. If someone wants to know what I have in my back pocket, I have that and a couple more scripts. So this is the next part of my career, uh, becoming a director, cinematographer, writer, um, and definitely more narrative more feature-based, more storytelling. Uh, my tagline is, everybody's geeky about something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what are you geeky about? Well, both of us are completely obsessed with music. We generally have music playing 24-7. For whatever reason, and I, you know, I wish I could remember who the third president was, Jefferson maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but I can tell you who the guitar player was when Aerosmith broke up in 1979, who replaced Joe Perry. Mm -hmm. Why I would know that and why I would retain that, I, I'm kind of annoyed. I've actually discovered after reading many, many music biographies that 
I do have a, a screenplay that I want to write, which is a amalgamation of many of rock band stories, which is what it happens after that first hit album. Mm -hmm. And you'll find a lot of the bands implode. And they also party like rock stars, where the term came from. Uh, but there's a fascinating story in there that could be really fun to explore. Um, now, uh, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you? It's really easy to find me if you just spell my last name. <laughs> <laughs> there's only about 10 of us in the country. Uh, and about two, of, two or three of us have websites. Uh, so last name is Matlos, M-A-T-L-O-S-Z, and it's easy to remember, Silly Zebra at the end. So uh, dpmatlos.com, like director of photography, matlos.com, jimmatlos.com, which I need to eventually make jimmymatlos.com. And then uh, we have the online date.net. And like I said, one Google search of the last name and you'll probably find Jimmy's website and a trailer for his new project are linked on my website, angiefsutton.com. Until next time, stay geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Feather Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Pitnikin, available via the Free Music Archive. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike license. More information about this podcast is available on angiefsutton.com.